Well, friends, we've had much to rejoice in this morning. We just recognize the gift of an elder to us. We got to hear wonderful baptismal testimonies at the start of the service after last week and that wonderful testimony from Himani. You know, as a pastor even, there can be times where, you know, life gets on and you feel like you're, you're slogging through and you wonder like, okay, Holy Spirit, I know you're real, but I don't, I don't know where you are. And I'm not sure the evidence of your existence in this world. And there are often two people I think of that constantly remind me that the Lord is in the business of changing people. And one is the conversion of my own father late in life. And the other was the conversion that you just heard a moment ago of my daughter Elizabeth. A wonderful testimony to how God is in the business of changing lives. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we give you praise. Lord, we have nothing to bring to you, nothing to offer, nothing to hold up before you, nothing to take confidence in. We look only to Christ. We plead only to him, to his life, to his death, to his blood, to his resurrection, to his ascension. And it's in him that we look even now as we go to your word. In whose name we pray, amen. Well, friends, Tiger Woods was on top of the world. The child prodigy turned Stanford star had won an astonishing 14 majors. His 2000 Pebble Beach win was by a record-setting 15 strokes, a record that still stands today. In 2009, he was there in the Oval Office taking pictures with President Obama. Right, the public loved him. The golf world loved him. He was, after all, sort of the uniquely American success story. He was a multi-ethnic superstar dominating a sport often uh, held by those who were wealthy and more white. He had a beautiful Swedish model superstar, El Nordgren. Their adorable young children often accompany them on the course. And that wholesome image netted him just endorsement deal after endorsement deal. General Motors, General Mills, Gatorade, American Express, Nike, he became the world's first professional athlete to earn a billion dollars. And he did that in just over 10 years. Yes, that was a billion with a B. And then came the whispers. Whispers of other women. And on a Thanksgiving night when Woods was knocked out on Ambien and Vicodin, Elle went to his phone and she started to look through his calls and his texts and recognized names and numbers that she didn't know. And so, pretending to be him, she texted one, she called another, and her worst fears were confirmed. A normally composed Woods then grabbed one of Woods' clubs or, and, and started to chase after. L was normally composed. She started to chase after Tiger and ran him out of the house and if you know the story, he jumped in his Escalade and blew through a, a set of bushes and hit a fire hydrant and then tragically hit a tree. And there he was, passed out, unconscious on the street. And within weeks, the number of mistresses and dancers and porn stars started to pile up. Elle was on the fence, still hoping that she might be able to make the marriage work. And then another surfaced. It was the daughter of their next-door neighbor whom Woods met when she was only 14. And just like that, the darling of the sports world became despised 
and in many ways has never truly recovered. But friends, it's not just Tiger Woods, is it? It's in other sports figures. You could look at Lance Armstrong. You could look at Joe Paterno. You could look at politicians, of course, like Richard Nixon or John Edwards or Anthony Weiner. Even famed religious figures like Jim Baker or Ted Haggard or more recently Bill Hybels or even Jerry Falwell Jr. all suffered spectacular falls from grace. And we're often left wondering, how did that happen? How did they fall so far? And we find ourselves repeatedly shocked, but one of the things I want us to be asking is, should we be? Should we really be shocked? You know, and all the salacious details unfold, we can read them sometimes as detached voyeurs, and we think, again, that couldn't possibly happen to us. But can we really be so sure? Well, friends, it's questions like this that bring us back this morning to our study in the book of 2 Samuel. I invite you to turn there now. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11, which you can find on page 262 if you want to look at one of those red Bibles in the seatbacks before you. Now, if you're just joining us, the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is really about the story of how Israel was transformed from just this sleepy little tribal people and became a formidable monarchy. And her first king was Saul, right? And while, as we saw, he certainly looked the part, he had the broad shoulders, he had the chiseled chin. The problem was he couldn't play the part, which is why God would what? He'd raise after a king, a man after his own heart. And that's the shepherd boy, David. And after many twists and turns in the book, David, well, he finally comes to power. He captures Jerusalem, he brings the ark safely to rest, and then he rapidly expands the kingdom. He's defeating Israel's enemies back there in chapters 8 through 10 on every side. And by the end of chapter 10, David's star has never burned brighter. Which brings us to chapter 11 this morning. The chapter on which really the whole of 2 Samuel turns in dramatic and in catastrophic fashion. So follow along as I read 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. 
When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths as in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises. If he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of your king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All right, now alongside David and Goliath, this is the most well-known story in all of First and Second Samuel, and this is indeed one of the most well-known stories in all the Bible. Now, you may be sitting in one of the pews this morning, and you may have little familiarity with the Bible or with Christianity, but my guess is you know something of this story 
between David and Bathsheba. And the whole chapter, we have to admit, it just reads like some Shakespearean tragedy. This is like a slow motion train wreck happening before our very eyes. For the events of chapters 8 to 10, those occurred with lightning speed. And yet here in chapter 11, everything seems to slow down. The temple goes to, the tempo rather goes to but a crawl. And David's star, which we had seen, had never burned brighter. It just falls spectacularly from the sky. And notice where all the attention lies. It's not on Bathsheba. She has but one line in this tragedy. I am pregnant. Two words in the Hebrew. That's it. Now where's the focus on Uriah? Right? He gets nothing but a single verse. It's a beautiful verse as it is, but it's just one verse. No, all the focus is on David and upon his deed. From beginning to end, the narrator wants us to keep our eyes on David. For in David, we see a kind of pattern that is consistent with all great falls from grace. Because, friends, nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what? I think I'm going to go commit adultery. Nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what? I think I'm going to murder one of my most trusted servants. No, we're slowly drawn into such things one sinful step at a time. And in chapter 11, we really have the anatomy of a fall. And so in our time together, I want us to, to trace the pattern we see here in chapter 11 and see what we also can learn along the way for our own souls. And there are really five acts to this tragedy that I want us to consider. There are going to be five acts I want us to consider. And we're just going to go through the story, so you're going to hear them as we go, right? Act one is the occasion. Act one is the occasion. Because again, notice how the scene opens, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So right there, notice, the narrator is telling us that something is wrong. For the spring was the time that kings led their armies out into battle, right? Roads were more passable. There's vegetation starting to grow for people, for, for livestock. Men aren't yet needed for the harvest, right? There's a reason why March was named after Mars, the Roman god of war. And yet while Joab and his army, and indeed we read all Israel, was engaged in Operation Rabbah, right? They're fighting and battling for their very lives. Where's David? I don't know. He's back home like playing his Xbox. He's back in Jerusalem. He's not out with the men. He's spending his afternoons drinking beer, going to Top Golf. Who knows what he's doing? Maybe he's playing bingo and doing crossword puzzles down at the local nursing home, right? We don't know what he's doing. We just know he's not with his men. And he should be with his men. He's absent. He's shirking his duty. Like the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, he has abandoned his post. He's gone AWOL. And just like those first events back in the Garden, it's exactly then that temptation strikes. Think about it. In your own life, 
when does temptation find you? Just think about it. When does temptation find you? Does it find you when you're in the midst of doing those things that God would have you to do? Or does it tend to find you in those times when you're not doing what God would have you to do? You see, temptation, I think, so often comes when we're not where God would have us to be. And it's exactly then that we're often most vulnerable. Right? It's the student who skips class or skips church because they're tired. And what do they do? They end up binging on Netflix, maybe. It's the husband who should be in bed with his wife late at night, and yet instead he's scrolling through a computer screen. It's the worker who should be at their desk completing that job for the boss, but instead they're over at the water cooler, so to speak. They're engaging in needless gossip. It's the wife who should be on her way home to her family, but instead she entertains a quick drink after work. Right? It's then that temptation strikes. So the way to resist temptation successfully, the way to resist all the enticements and allurements of this world isn't simply just by exercising more willpower. That's not simply what the Bible calls us to do, right? No, how does temptation work? Temptation appeals to the will. It appeals to the heart. It appeals to what we want. That's exactly how it works, which makes it so dangerous. Instead, we need to make ourselves busy with a higher purpose. Because it's far easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. Recognize that. It is far easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. And so unless you want to risk being another David... Begin by simply being faithful day in and day out to what God would have you to do, one hour at a time. That is how we keep the devil from gaining a foothold into our lives, Ephesians 4.27. So that's act one, the occasion, and that's just verse one. But notice act two, we've gone from the occasion to the temptation. Act two is the temptation. Notice how verse two opens. It happened. Oh, what an ominous way to begin, right? We know something, something's about to go down. It happened. For David, what? We read he arose late from his siesta. He decides to go take some kind of rooftop stroll. And it's then that he sees a woman bathing, and we're told that the woman was very beautiful. Now, is this David just going up to his roof to get some fresh air? Or is this the ancient equivalent of staying up late at night and browsing the internet? Well, we're not actually told. The text doesn't say. And so I think we should be careful to jump to too many conclusions. You know, similarly, some have said, well, Bathsheba, right, she purposely bathed in view of the palace. And she's playing here the role of the seductress. But again, nothing in the text suggests that she deliberately enticed David. Okay, what are we told in the text? Simply that she was very beautiful. A phrase that's reserved for people with striking physical appearance. It's rarely used. It's used of Rebecca back in Genesis. It's used of Esther in Esther 2. And not to discriminate against men. It's actually used of David himself back in 1 Samuel 16. And it's used of Bathsheba. In other words, she's a knockout. 
Right? That's what the text is saying. When she passed, men's heads would turn like they're on a swivel. That was Bathsheba. And so what will David do now? That's the question. Will David realize, okay, I got a choice to make. And I'm not where I should be. I'm going to go down, I'm going to grab my sling and some stones, and I'm going to go join the army. Right? Go back with my men. Is that the choice he makes? Or does he quickly rush inside and say, I got to get down on my knees and pray? Or does he just go down to his basement gym and do a hit workout? Right? Any of those things would have been better than the decision David makes. Perhaps he lingers like a creepy voyeur. We're not told. We are told that he needs to know who she is. And that's his second grave error. He had a chance to end it right here, but he didn't. He leaned in instead of running away. Even when the servant responds, even the way the servant responds to David, right? notice what he says, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So Eliam, we're going to see, is the son of Ahithophel, who's one of David's uh, most trusted advisors. And we later learn that both Uriah and Eliam are one of David's elite 30 mighty men, right? The equivalent of Israel's Navy SEALs. Like, they're in that group. So notice who Bathsheba is. She is the daughter of one of David's best fighters. She's the granddaughter of one of his most trusted counselors. And she's the wife of one of his inner circle of most honored soldiers. It's as if the, the servant is saying to David, it's as if he's saying, David, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, but don't do it. It's too dangerous. Someone is going to get hurt. But it doesn't matter for David the circumstance. And it doesn't matter the sin. And it doesn't matter for us the circumstance or the sin. Sin hurts people. It hurts people, period. It destroys people, as we're going to see. Which is why in the midst of temptation, the Bible has but one word for you. In the midst of temptation, what is that one word? Flee. Yeah, run. Make like Joseph, right? Run as fast as you can. Flee, in Paul's words, from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee youthful lusts. Flee worldly temptations. Now, I know some will call that legalism. Friends, the Bible calls that wisdom. Calls it wisdom. So, my Christian friend, when you feel that undercurrent of temptation and you feel it pulling you away from shore... Don't decide to play in the waters a little bit longer, right? Get out of the water. Get out. So some of you listening to my voice, it's possible you're on the brink and debating, considering a very foolish decision. Maybe you're entertaining an adulterous affair like David. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's cheating on an upcoming exam. Maybe it's engaging in some kind of fraudulent business practices. Maybe it's settling a score, right? Getting even with someone for whom you hold a grudge. Whatever that is, the Bible is pleading with you to flee, to cut and to run. Don't toy with sin. Don't entertain it. Flee from it. 
Because with one hand, sin will caress your head and will whisper sweet nothings in your ear, and with the other, it will slit your throat. Sin destroys. But sadly, David doesn't flee, does he? Instead, David's like, I'm going to play Russian roulette with my soul. That's what I'm going to do. He entertains the thought of her. He likely replays the moment, I, I presume, over and over in his head. He, the hook now is set in David's mouth, and he has to have her. Which brings us to Acts 3, the transgression. Acts 3, the transgression. We get the sense already at this point, the deed is as good as done. Verse 4, we read, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Notice how the actions there are quick and swift. Sent, took, lay. The verbs kind of rush at us just like David's passions. So cold too, isn't it? So unfeeling. There's no hint of caring here. No hint of conversation. There's no aroma of love, only lust. The man who refused to seize the throne is now not afraid to seize her. And we're left with so many questions, aren't we? Why did David feel like he had the right to take her? Did Bathsheba come willingly? Was this consensual? Is that even a meaningful term when you're talking about a king with near absolute power? Was it a one-night stand? Did they develop a secret love affair? Did they write notes and were they casting kind of suggestive, furtive glances at one another in the marketplace? Was he sneaking out at night trying to clap, climb through her back window? Was she coming to his place and tiptoeing up the back stairs? Right? We don't know. We're not told. Speculation, again, is dangerous. What we are told is that he took her. And that's exactly the same language used back in 2 Samuel 5.13, where we read that David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. And it's that infamous word all the way back in 1 Samuel 8, where Israel was warned that if she demanded a king like the nations, what would that king do? Well, that king would take, take land, take food, take sons for warriors, and take daughters as well. You see, the narrator is helping us see David here is behaving just like a king of the nations. Just as the Lord prophesied would happen, he is abusing his power. And I'd be careful, though, to necessarily equate this with rape. Because when that same language of taking is used back in chapter 5, verse 13. There's no sense there in any way that David was raping those women. And the Bible has a word for rape. doesn't use it here. And in just two chapters, we're going to read the tragic story of Amnon and Tamar. And we're going to read that he violates her. And that term is used repeatedly, speaking of rape. But it's not used here. But don't for a moment think that that in any way excuses David. Everything about his actions right here are sickening. And in chapter 12, God is going to throw the whole book, so to speak, at David. David is going to pay mightily for what he has done. 
Everything about the narrative lays the blame at David's feet and at his alone. Now that note there that she had been purifying herself, well, that's just to highlight the fact that she's completed her period, which is to say, what? Obviously, Uriah can't be the father of the child, right? He's been off at war. So Uriah can't be the father of this child. Now, how much time has elapsed between verses 4 and 5? We're not told. Only that she secretly makes the trip to the CVS, right? She buys the tests. She waits with bated breath, and there are the two pink lines. Only what should be a cause of great elation now, no doubt, becomes the cause of great trepidation for Bathsheba. Because Uriah, remember, he's been at war for months, and she's pregnant, and she's soon going to show, and everybody's going to know the child is not his. So she alerts David, right? The only word she speaks, I'm pregnant. And we have to think those words must have stopped David in his tracks, right? Weeks have now passed. No doubt he, he thinks this whole event is behind him, a thing of the past, right? Bury it and just pretend it never happened. Move on with life. Chalk it up to a moment of indiscretion. Boys will be boys. I don't know what David's thinking. But friends, our sins always have a way of catching up with us. They do. Our sins always have a way with catching up with us, which is a good warning to us. Because if we're right now, if you right now are engaged in sin, and if you've deceived yourself into thinking this sin is private, nobody knows, nobody's going to find out, be warned. Sin is like oxygen in water. It always finds a way to drift up to the surface. And the punishment for adultery under the Mosaic law is death. Death to both parties. So what's David going to do now? Is he going to own up to the fact? Is he going to face the music? Is he going to deny the charges and have her be stoned? I mean, after all, who's going to take her word over Israel's most famous king? No, David is still hoping he can escape this one. And thus begins Operation Cover-Up, right? They got Operation Rabbah over there. David's got Operation Cover-Up at home. Which takes us to Act 4, the deception. So we saw Act 1, the occasion. Act 2, the temptation. Act 3, the transgression. Now Act 4, the deception. Which really covers chapter 6 all the way through verse, or rather verse 6, all the way through verse 25. And here we see David, what? He hatches a three-part plan, all to cover up his sin. And notice how each plan is more ruthless than the first. So there's the relatively clean, we could say, plan A. Then there's the little more dirty, plan B. And then there is the diabolical plan C, right, if all else fails. And so what's plan A? Well, it's bring your eye off the front lines. He's been away for weeks, if not months now. Certainly, Uriah would be anxious to see his wife, and voila, right? It will look like Uriah's child. Nobody needs to know. Crisis averted. Humanly speaking, it's a pretty good plan. So Uriah makes the roughly 50-mile trip back to Jerusalem, no doubt wondering what business could possibly call him to see the king. And we read that they exchange some pleasantries, they shoot the breeze, they trade some war stories, and then David just casually says in verse 8, he says, 
go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, David could be saying, you know, you got to bathe those stinky things, right? That's pretty nasty. You've been, you've been on the road a while. You need to give us some attention to your feet. Go refresh yourself at home. He could be saying that, but it's also the case that feet serves as a kind of euphemism in the Old Testament for one's private parts. It's a euphemism. In which case, this is no doubt a double entendre. David would have said this with kind of a wink and a nod, as if to say, go back home and enjoy your wife. That's what he's communicating. David reasons, right? Just as one bath led to sex, right? Back there in the earlier verses, now another bath might lead to sex. I guess that's his logic. And to sweeten the deal, notice he even sends him off with a gift basket in verse 8. Something that the couple could enjoy together. Maybe there's some spices, some incense, some oil. Maybe there's a nice bottle of like Jerusalem Valley Cabernet. And we don't know what's in it. But there's something in it to sweeten the deal here. And you know, at this point, David must have felt proud with himself. He must have felt proud. Phew, right? I've, I've just dodged a bullet with that one. It wasn't too hard after all. Only we learn what? Uriah doesn't go. He doesn't go down to his house. Instead, he sleeps in the servants' quarters and doesn't go. Now, David, what does he do? He gets wind of this, and he calls Uriah in. He's like, what gives Uriah? You've been away. Don't you want to see your wife? And note Uriah's response in verse 11. Again, the only time Uriah speaks, he says, verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. Again, think tense. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord, speaking of the military, they are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I mean, that is a righteous response from Uriah, isn't it? He opens first what? With concern for the ark of God, right? He's got his priorities straight. And then he goes to the people and then he goes to his comrades in the open field and he says, how could I eat and how could I drink and how could I lie with my wife? A term that when David heard it should have cut him right. In fact, how convicting that whole speech in verse 11 ought to have been. That whole speech ought to have cut David right to the heart. If it were not for the fact that at this point his conscience had become so calloused. But friends, that's what sin does. It has a way of callousing our own hearts. Right? In the words of Romans 1, when we repeatedly sin over and over, we what? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that hardening has an effect upon our hearts, such that we read by the end of Romans 1, verse 29, we read that it leads to what? To envy. I mean, just think about these words as you think about this story. It leads to what? Envy, murder, strife, deceit maliciousness. Sound familiar? They become what? They become, he goes on to say, Paul does, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Friends, is that not the treacherous path that David here walks? 
Now in the conquest of the promised land, all sanctioned military activity was seen as an act of service to the Lord. And therefore it required ritual purity. Which meant when the men were on campaign, they were what? They were abstinent. But David seems to think, you know what, Uriah is not going to be a stickler on this stuff. He's a Hittite after all, right? He's going to want to see his wife. He'll, he'll bend the law a bit, right? He'll go down. He'll be there. But Uriah knows to sleep with his wife would have made him temporarily unfit for duty. And he understands he first has a duty to the Lord and to his men. He, again, has his priorities straight. He won't go. And at this, David's heart must have sunk. Right? What's with this guy? He's a Hittite. Just go down to your house. Enjoy your wife. It's turning out to be harder to cover this thing up than David thought. But notice the contrast. Because while the men are at war, who's sleeping not just in a house, but in a palace? It's David. And who's whining and dining and chasing women while the men are abstinent and fighting? It's David. And who's committed adultery in the process? It's David. David is acting as a Gentile Hittite should. Whereas Uriah is acting as Israel's king should. It's a complete role reversal between the two. And the irony is that while no doubt tempted, Uriah wouldn't go to his wife, though he had every right. While David, when tempted, took his wife, though he had no right. So what does David do? He hatches plan B. It's not quite as neat and clean we see as plan A, is it? And what's his plan? Get Uriah hammered. That's his plan. Get him passed out drunk. And if we can do that, David reasons, his sense of duty will be dulled by the alcohol and he'll go down and he'll be with his wife. Only what? Uriah again refuses to go. He somehow stumbles his way drunk back to the servants' quarters and stays there. And there's just more irony. So many ironies in the story, right? Because notice this. Notice how Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. Not what we would expect. And our respect for this guy keeps growing, which makes what happens to him all the more tragic. So at this point, David is quickly running out of options. What's he going to do? Is he going to finally repent and own up to it all? Is he just going to leave Bathsheba high and dry? I mean, his options are looking worse by the moment. Someone was going to die for this sin. But who? Can't be Bathsheba. It certainly won't be David in David's own mind, which only leaves one option. He's going to have to take out Uriah. The innocent one would have to die for the guilty. And in verses 14 to 25, that word that is repeatedly mentioned is that word die. Verse 15, verse 17, verse 21, verse 24, then later in verse 26. So yeah, sure, there's going to be a funeral at Arlington National Cemetery. There's going to be the ceremonial three rifle volleys. There's going to be taps played on the bugle. There's going to be the folding of the flag. The Jerusalem press is going to eulogize Uriah's exceptional military service. It's going to further flame all the anti-Ammonite sentiment, right, in the land. And goodness, David's thinking maybe we'll even get some more recruits out of this. 
Whatever David was thinking, it's clear he needs Uriah dead. And that's all now that matters. You know, it's a reminder of that old adage with Nixon, right, during Watergate. The cover-up is always worse than the crime. Which is why if you are secretly harboring some sin this morning, perhaps you're even now trying to cover your tracks and you're trying to hide it from others, just see again, it won't turn out well. It never turns out well. Think of how the sins in the story are beginning to mount. Right? There's deception and there's lying about it. And then there's the bigger lie to cover up the previous lie. That is what's going to happen in your life. The sins will just keep mounting one upon the other. And if that doesn't work, at some point you're going to pass the deed off onto someone else. Think if you're hiding, think of the toll that's taking upon you. Think of the toll that it's taking upon you spiritually. Think of the toll that it's taking upon your relationship, not just with the Lord, but also with others. It's not worth it. Right? The story is calling us to repent, to come clean, to what? To face the music, yes, and to be forgiven. Because sin, it always deceives, it always dehumanizes. And it always destroys. Are you seeing that here in this story? How sin does that? How it deceives, dehumanizes, and destroys. David thought he could let the lion out of the cage. For just a moment. He could have his fun and then he could get the lion back in the cage. He thought he was in control. But friends, as we read the story, who's the one who's clearly not in control? It's David. He's the king. But he seems powerless and everything he does seems to backfire on him. No, nothing is going according to plan. You know, friends, once unleashed, we can't control sin. We think we can control it. We think we can put it back in the box when we're done. But when we sin and hide like this, it's like opening Pandora's box. Sin deceives us. And it dehumanizes us. Consider Bathsheba. I don't know if you picked up on the story. Her name is actually used just once. Verse 3. It's never used after that. Just once in verse 3, as if she's simply a vessel for another's pleasure. She's just a pawn in somebody else's game. Joab's going to become the hatchet man, and David will become what? He'll become just beastly in his use and in all of his abuse of power. Sin doesn't just deceive, it dehumanizes us. And we're seeing that right here in 2 Samuel 11. And it destroys us. And is that not what we're watching? Is that not the transformation taking place in David's very life? The one who was a man after God's own heart now seems to have no heart. The man who wouldn't lift a hand against Saul has no problem striking down his servant. The one who even wept at Saul's funeral can't even bother to bring himself to a tear here in chapter 11. The man who just granted Mephibosheth a place at his table is the one who here puts Uriah in the grave. You know, we read the Ten Commandments at the start of the service. And just consider, as Mike alluded to, how many of those commandments David has now broken. Coveting a man's wife? Check. Committing adultery? Check. Stealing? Perhaps? Check. Committing murder? check. Friends, sin is never happy with part of us. It must have all of us until 
it destroys us. It's a powerful picture of James 1.14, is it not? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, interesting the language that's being used by James, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire, conception, birth, death. It almost makes you wonder if James, and as he's writing that verse, has this story in his mind. And from this point forward, David's life will just begin to unravel. His family will start to fall apart. His newborn son, as we're going to see, will die. His children rebel against him. There's rape. There's civil war. That's all chapters 12 through 20. All because sin destroys Exhibit A right here, David and Bathsheba. So again, my Christian friend, if you are flirting with sin, if you're seeking to take it out of its cage and you think you can return it once you're done with it, it's a fool's errand. Like a lion, it's going to turn on you and it will devour you. So repent, run, right? Flee to Christ for he is the one who is full of steadfast love, the one who forgives, as we read earlier, even in the Ten Commandments, God is the one who forgives iniquity and transgression, but by no means will he leave the guilty unpunished. Now listen, if you've come this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't have to walk the same path. You don't have to follow David's dark path. There is light there is a ramp off this highway to hell we're reading in chapter 11. And that ramp is the person of Jesus Christ. For like Uriah, Jesus was the one who would die, the truly innocent one who would die for the guilty. Only unlike Uriah, Jesus, well, he would do it willingly. He would willingly lay down his life for sinners. And then as he would voluntarily lay it down, Right, his life on the cross, a substitute, he would what? Take it up again. And he would defeat death. He would defeat sin, defeat the grave, so that we could be forgiven and set free as we turn from our own sins and look to Christ. So, friend, look to Christ. Turn and be forgiven. He is a gracious God. But David doesn't do this, does he? Well, at least not yet. And we see how Uriah's death is but a foregone conclusion. And David sends him, and he sends him carrying the note that consigns him to his own death. He, Uriah, is called to bear the instrument of his own execution, just as Jesus would be called to bear his. David knows Joab is all too happy to set aside his own moral scruples, right, to to engage and to enter into this diabolical plot with him. Remember what Joab did to Abner? Only Joab seems to follow more the spirit of this letter than the actual words of it. Because notice, Joab doesn't just send Uriah to his death, does he? Now perhaps he thinks, listen, if I send Uriah, one man, against a wall, an armed city at the gate, at its strongest point, with all of the archers, I send one guy, that's going to look suspicious. So I can't send one guy, i got to send a whole platoon. And apparently that's what happens, such that we read that numerous men die, soldiers. According to Jewish tradition, 18 men died. 
And we see, again, how the consequences of one sin after another are now just snowballing, consuming and destroying everything in its path. Now think about it. Do you think if David, do you think if he knew way back on that rooftop, do you think if he knew how all this would unfold, a baby, a conspiracy, drunkenness, a death warrant, not just one military funeral, but 18 or so, do you think he would have called for Bathsheba that fateful night? No way. No way he would have done it. But that's because sin deceives. It always hides its true cost. It offers us all kinds of promises. It just never shows us the price tag. And if we knew the consequences of our sins, we would never do them. But such is the deceitfulness of sin. Such that by the time the messenger comes to David with the news, notice what David says in verse 25. He says to the messenger, hey, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Does that sound like a man who's gutted? Does that sound like a man who's contrite? No, he doesn't fall back into his chair in stunned silence, overcome with the fact that now there are 18 funerals and not just one. No, he waxes philosophically, right? Oh, the sword devours now one and now another. Hey, Joab, these are just the vicissitudes of war. Don't sweat it. Go back to the city and overthrow it. That's his response. I think right there in that response in verse 25, and just contrast that response to Uriah's speech. But I think right there, David has descended into the deepest and darkest depths. That is just a truly hellish transformation of the man. And thus we come to Act 5, the conclusion. Simply the conclusion. In verse 26, what do we see? Well, the military vehicle arrives at the house and the sergeant steps out with the chaplain. And by the look of the somber faces, it's clear. As soon as there's the knock on the door... Bathsheba knows. Did she drop on the floor? Did she wail in agony? Did she wonder if she caused this somehow? Did she wonder what was now going to happen to her, a widow, and yet with a growing baby? How is she going to explain this? Well, we're not long left in suspense. For as soon as the morning is over, which was typically a week, David sends for her, and we read that she becomes his wife. And months later, she bears a son. Humanly speaking, it looks like David did dodge the bullet. Looks like he got away with it. He even gets a baby out of it. But then we get that final line in verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I read that and I'm like, that is the understatement of the century. Like, displease the Lord? I mean, it's as if that action by David just caused like the Lord's eyebrow to barely raise. But here's the thing. You could translate that a little more woodenly like this. The thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Notice that displeased is the same word that David uses back in verse 25. When David says to Joab, 
do not let this matter displease you, as in do not let this matter be seen as evil in your eyes. And here we see that though David himself did not regard this matter as evil, verse 25, the Lord certainly did. Verse 27. For thus far, notice God has been conspicuously absent. God hasn't been mentioned once in chapter 11. He appears silent. It's as if perhaps all of this has escaped God's notice. But here we see that in fact nothing has escaped his gaze Nothing has escaped God's notice. Oh, friend, never assume that the silence of God indicates the indifference of God. Never assume in your life that the apparent silence of God indicates the indifference of God. David may have Bathsheba's flesh and Uriah's blood, but he will have to face Yahweh's eyes. David didn't factor God into the equation. He acted instead like a man with impunity. But we're about to see in chapter 12 just how displeased God is with David. I mean, notice even the way Bathsheba is described and referred to in verse 26. How is she referred to? Rather awkwardly as we read it, we kind of stumble over it. The wife of Uriah. Right? The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. The wife of Uriah, Uriah, her husband, just subtle reminders by the narrator that David is the one in sin. He is the one taking another's wife. He is the one killing a husband. Because, friends, God will always have the last word when it comes to our sin. And at his judgment, it is his judgment that is the only one that finally matters. Friends, that right there is the anatomy of a fall. We've just seen how step by tortuous step, one decision at a time, David went from the heights to the utter depths. This is a devastating fall from grace. And the temptation for us can be to look at a story like this and to think, yeah, but I would never do that. I would never do that. But do you really think that you're better than David the king? He was, after all, he was God's king. He was the man after God's own heart. He's the writer of so many great psalms of faith. The one to whom God spoke directly and gave eternal promises, as we thought of last week. David was a better man than you and me. And yet he still fell catastrophic. Friends, sin can take you down paths you never dreamed of walking. Nobody, again, wakes up one day and thinks, I'm going to have an affair. Nobody wakes up one day and thinks, you know, today I'm going to commit massive corporate fraud that's going to land me in jail. That's not how we work. But if we neglect our duties, if we gratify our desires, if we indulge our fantasies, if we then seek to cover up our transgressions, if we fail to flee, then we may be exactly, and that may be exactly where you end up. Because sin deceives, it dehumanizes, and it destroys. It is never content with some of you. It must have all of you. So in the words of the famous Puritan John Nellan, right, be killing sin. That is our only posture. 
be killing it. How? In part, by fleeing from it, not toying with it, playing with it, but by repenting of it and running from it, lest it be what? Lest it be killing you. So friend, which will it be in your own life? Let's pray.